Luke 21, 5, um, 5 to 38. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with a gift dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you, are, when you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to Silagos and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will, be, so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, and sisters, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm, and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by, by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Then let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against the, th this people. They will fall by the sword and will taken as prisoners to all, nation, all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the warring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the, on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Like a, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see it for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with 
carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of the world, the, of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went, on, he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all that people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Anne. All right, let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to hear um, a pretty interesting passage. We've already heard your word, and now we want to hear this message. Help us understand it. Help us apply it. Help us look forward to uh, Christ's return. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to talk a little bit about a serious issue, about the, the thing that terrorizes children the most, the thing that just like strikes fear in the heart of every child, and that's quicksand. Maybe you guys are familiar with this concept of quicksand and you spent much of your childhood, like me, thinking and worrying about quicksand and how to identify it and what might happen if you were to accidentally stumble into a pool of quicksand in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. Uh, that, that's my experience, and I look forward to passing that fear on to my son, Elijah. I will tell him about the terrors of quicksand. Uh, well, this week I came across a wonderful game uh, called The Worst Case Scenario Survival Game. And I'm sure many of you grew up with this, like, in your game cabinet. Like, this is one of those, this is like, this is as common as apples to apples in Uno, right? Like, we've all played this game and enjoyed it. No, we haven't. Uh, this is a game from 2001. Uh, it's from University Games. So already you've, like, lost some of us there. You're like, oh, okay. Um, apparently, I think it's based on a book from, like, the late 90s. Uh, but it has some survival tips uh, that I thought might be, you know, as my pastoral duty, I should pass them along to you. Uh, and unfortunately, there's not one on quicksand that I could find, uh, so you'll have to, like, Google that later. It's not as difficult or as terrorizing as it sounds. Uh, I'm sure you can get out of it. Uh, but the first one, I think, is a little bit more relevant since we live in Massachusetts. Sharks. You know, like, there are sharks. How are we going to deal with a shark if we run into a shark? So... How to fend off a shark. Now, these are three options, and I want you to choose one in your own mind, all right? So you're gonna, this, this is, a, this is a, a big group game that we're going to play together. How to fend off a shark. A, make repeated, quick, sharp jabs in the eyes or gills. B, punch or kick it in the nose. Or C, grab and hold one or both pectoral fins. All right, now, you're, don't, don't shout out the answer. Don't say it. And that's, what, that's your opinion, you know? This could be uh, fake news. Like, uh, you got your own answer. You have to have your own answer here, all right? Do you have your own answer in your mind? 
All right, the answer is A, make repeated quick sharp jabs in the eyes or gills. I thought it was a combination of A and B. So like I would have had a good chunk out of my leg, but I still would have survived. Um, you know, because I would have gotten to the eyes and the gills eventually. All right, so some of you survived. Let's go to one. Maybe you're sick of vacationing on Cape Cod. You're like, I want to go to someplace a little bit more tropical, a little bit more jungle. Well, you got to watch out for man-eating tigers. Uh, how to fend off a man-eating tiger. A, wear a face mask on the back of your head. B, rub elephant dung or urine on your clothing. You weren't expecting to hear that word at church tonight. C, cover your body with crushed garlic. The smell repels tigers. All right, this is a little bit more challenging. A, B, or C? Well, the answer is A, wear a face mask on the back of your head. A lot of you died, didn't you? A lot of you died. Okay, here we go. Final question. See if you can get it. How to foil a UFO abduction. Now, I'm not sure, like, what, like, qualifies them. I mean, university, maybe some of them have been abducted, but let's get to it. Uh, a, never travel alone in the woods. No UFO abduction has ever involved more than seven people. B, dress like a tourist and carry cameras and a map, appear willing to go with the aliens. C, focus your thoughts toward the alien, tell it, leave me alone, go away, I have a virus. All right. Do you have your answer in your mind? This is a serious, stop smiling, guys. This is serious. The answer is C, focus your thoughts toward the alien. Don't leave me alone, get away, I have a virus. So did anyone here survive the sharks, the tigers, and the UFOs? Anyone here? Terry? <laughs> University games, uh, you did well. Uh, resident academic? All right, I want to ask you one more question that I invented. This is not from the game, and it's going to transition us to our passage, to our topic uh, tonight. This is kind of the, with, the, with the sermon. How to survive the end of the world. A, invest in a bunker, or be the first to colonize Mars. B, live life to the fullest now because there's no escape. C, the only way to survive the end of the world is with Jesus. So what do you think the answer is? I bet none of you are digging a bunker, but I don't really know. I mean, you don't usually tell people about your bunker, right? Because that defeats the purpose. Maybe some of you are looking for employment with SpaceX. You want to be the first to go to Mars or NASA. But I'm going to kind of put forward tonight that the right answer, the, the correct answer, the best answer is C. The only way to survive the end of the world is with Jesus. Jesus tells his audience, so he's at the temple. This is the Passion Week. This is the week uh, that he dies, Sunday to Sunday. Jesus tells his audience this. The only way to survive the end of the world is with him. The best answer is C. Now, when I say the end of the world, what do I mean? 
In some ways, I mean like the literal end of the world. We love those disaster movies, right? Those end of the world movies, Armageddon. Well, I mean the literal end of the world, but at the same time, I don't mean the end of the world because if you look at the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about a new heaven and a new earth and all things being restored and made new. Well, today, this passage can be a little bit confusing. And yet, I think there's a structure to it that helps us understand how to survive the end of the world. See, I believe it's my job as a pastor to actually not get you ready for those other things, those other silly things, but to get you ready for the end of the world, whether it's the end of your life or the end of this world, this present age. And so I want us to to kind of take an overview of the passage and outline of Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. So if you have your Bibles, uh, you can look at them. There's also Bible apps if you don't have one out uh, with you, or you you can just kind of follow along with me on the screen. So an outline of Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. The first 24 verses, so verse 5 through verse 24, Jesus is prophesying not about the end of the world, but the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. All right, so he's talking about events that are going to take place shortly after the de- his death and resurrection. Now, he uses this for a reason. You know, sometimes we paint a picture of something to kind of, uh, we, we, we use like a, a small thing to be an example of something bigger, right? Communion is an example of something bigger. Christ given his body and blood, and we do this with other things as well. Well, Jesus is using the destruction of the temple to be a sign or a symbol or a pattern for the next verses that follow, verses 25 through 28. Jesus prophesies the end of the world at his return. So it's a pattern, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of the destruction of the end of the world and the return of Christ Jesus, the end of days. And then what follows, verses 29 through 33, Jesus assures his audience that these things will take place. There's this little parable of a fig tree. And then in verses 38 through, uh, uh, verses 34 through 38, Jesus tells his audience how to live in light of these things. Now, Jesus does that as he goes through the passage as well, uh, but there's like this specific kind of application at the end that will slow down, and that's the kind of the, the so what. what is, how does this make a difference for my life? Now, instead of preaching this passage verse by verse or section by section, I want to look at the big picture. I want to help prepare you for the return of Christ, and I want to answer four different questions about the end of the world, about the return of Jesus. And these are maybe questions that you've asked or uh, you're glad that they're being asked tonight. And the first question is, what will happen? So what will happen? And we're going to focus first on the, the, the short-term example, the destruction of the temple, because it tells us about that final thing. It's a pattern or a type. So Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which takes place in 70 A.D. Uh, but before that happens, they're, they're at the temple, and some of his disciples, verse 5, they're remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. 
So they're saying, look how beautiful this structure is. Look how amazing. And apparently if you were there, it was really amazing. We see this in Mark 13. The, one of the disciples just says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Apparently it was huge. Now, the temple was like constructed according to the patterns laid out in the Old Testament. But Herod came along and built the temple and he like expanded the complex so that it was just really impressive. There was a lot more land, a lot more room. But I want to focus for a moment on the stones itself. See, we don't have any stones left from the temple. The temple's been destroyed. It's completely gone. There's, there's no stones left. But there, is a, there are stones kind of on the temple mount. That's it's like the walls, the, you know, the, 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 the raised structure that it's sat on. And if you... If you study these stones, if you learn about them, you learn it's really impressive. See, there's one stone there. It's called the Western Stone. It's one of the biggest stones ever uh, like laid, <laughs> laid down. And you can see it from kind of her, where her hand is to up towards the, the ceiling. This is one long stone. It's, it's uh, 10 feet high, 10 to 12 feet high. It's uh, 6 to 12 feet deep. They don't know exactly how deep it is into the wall, and it's 45 feet long. And it's one solid stone. It weighs approximately 517 tons. So that's 1,139,789 pounds. Now, just kind of put it in our like, vocabulary, um, that's 200 elephants or 200 jumbo jets. It's about 54 dump trucks. That weighs a lot. And they didn't like have cranes or, or motors. And somehow they were able to lay this stone in the wall. You can see why like the, the, the Jewish people, the disciples, they get excited about this, this wonderful structure. How impressive it would be. It would kind of bring a lot of honor. It would bring a lot of fame and like when you looked up at the temple, when you looked at this building that man had made, you'd think, well, God must be with us. <laughs> our, our religion must be true because look at, look at how big our temple is. Our God must be powerful and present with us. And in some ways, they were right. <laughs> but unfortunately, like he was standing right there in the form of a man, Christ Jesus, and he was prophesying the end of the temple. He was, he, was, he was prophesying that their most valued religious object, their building, their temple, would be destroyed. This is because they've actually rejected God. They think God is with them because of this building, but they, they actually reject their king, their Messiah, their God. And so Jesus prophesies in Luke chapter 21, verse 6, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. It's pretty sobering. And I wanted to kind of jump into our age. How does this apply to us, right? We're not like looking at a temple. We're not looking at a building and saying, wow, look at how amazing that building is. But I did listen to a pastor this week. He compared church buildings to lunch bags. And I thought, actually, a better example is lunch boxes, right? So 
So we each, we each, maybe you grew up, I don't, I don't know if kids have lunch boxes, kids, I don't know if kids have lunch boxes these days, uh, but when you grew up, like you could have like a Star Wars themed lunch box or a Cinderella or a Disney princess themed lunch box, right? And you could take your food in it to school. Maybe you have like a cool pack today. And that's cool, like you could show your friends, hey, I have, a, I have a lunch box. You could look at it or you could like keep it in its box and put it up as a collector if you want. But at the end of the day, does that lunch box like fill you up? <laughs> like if you take it to school and it just kind of sits in your backpack, it doesn't do you much good. Like you need to open it up, you need to take out your sandwich, your crackers and your cheese and you need to eat it. Because that's what brings us nourishment. And so as we look at our buildings and our facilities, we are very blessed, and like, I love them. Like, I, I've taken, I think, 17 pictures on our Instagram account just of our building. Like, I, I like this place. But this place can't be our priority. Our priority first is what goes inside this place, the ministry. And yet we're so thankful for those that help us take care of this place because it's important. You need a lunchbox. It's just a, an order of priority. What comes first, the meal or the box? And so this is just a a reminder, an opportunity to examine our own hearts as we look back at these disciples. You know, I'm not prophesying the destruction of the Cornerstone building, but this building did collapse in 2001. Like the roof actually collapsed. Insurance had to come in and rebuild it. So it's a good reminder Let's make sure Christ and his ministry is for first. Now, Jesus, he wants to snap his people out of their love for their temple. Because they have rejected God and they're, they're kind of assuming God's with them because of this structure. They wanna, he wants to snap them back into to faithfully loving God, faithfully loving him. So he foretells this destruction of the temple and it comes true. Now, we don't have a recording in the Bible of the destruction of the temple, but in 70 AD, Titus, the emperor, he walks an army to to Jerusalem and just ravages and pillages the land and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. And it's, it's it's a gruesome bloody scene, and we have an actual record uh, from the historian Josephus. Josephus was the leader of a rebel group, and he switched sides and became like their recorder. And he recorded the destruction. And apparently he was prone to some exaggeration, I think more in terms of like saying how great Titus was. Uh, But he wrote this. He said, uh, so, so Titus has sieged the city Famine has took a hold of the city, and now Titus is burning the temple and the city. He says this. He says, No pity was shown on account of age or out of respect for anyone's dignity. Children and elderly lay people and priests alike were slain. The battle surged ahead and surrounded everybody, including both those who begged for mercy and those who resisted. The flames spread out to a great distance, and its noise mixed with the groans of the perishing And such was the height of the ridge and the magnitude of the burning that one would have imagined the whole city was aflame. Rome took 97,000 captives and either crucified, burned alive, or killed with the sword 1,100,000 people, including men, women, children, the elderly, and the feeble. 
It was genocide. And Jesus uses that as a picture, as a picture of his coming wrath, his coming judgment on this world against sin, against any who who don't come to him asking for mercy in this life. Christ will return. And this is just like a small picture. This is just like a tiny grasp of that future judgment that is coming. And if you don't know Jesus, I want to beg you, don't stand before the wave of that coming judgment. Don't say, okay, I'll wait and see what happens. Because you don't want to be on the receiving end of Christ's judgment. You want to be on the receiving end of his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. Jesus is not going to perform a mass genocide. See, at the end of the day, he's going to reveal what we deserve because of our sins, because of the ways that we have disobeyed and dishonored God. And you can either have Christ pay for them on the cross with his own blood, which we sang about earlier, or you can pay for your sins with your own blood. And I hope you don't have to. You don't have to. Right now, you can say, I'm sorry, Christ. Save me. I repent. And I welcome you in, not as, a, as one who brings judgment and wrath, but I welcome you in as a redeemer, as a deliverer. That's, a, that's an entirely different ending. So the destruction of the temple is a picture of the final judgment, and it reminds us to prioritize Jesus and his ministry first about those other things that can take priority in our lives. I want to ask a second question. So that's what will happen. This is when will it happen. Question two. When Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, The disciples ask him when it's going to happen. Verse 7, teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Of course, Jesus doesn't answer their question. (laughs) He doesn't say, okay, well, if you look at your clocks right now and then you adjust it for the upcoming calendar um, that's going to take place in a couple hundred years, like we'll, we'll figure out the time. No. He gives signs. He gives these signs. And he, and he first he talks about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I just wanted to show you kind of the signs of the Jerusalem's destruction, the temple's destruction. Verse 9, they will hear of wars and uprisings. Verse 10, nations will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdoms. Verse 11, there will be a great earthquakes and famines and pestilences and other heavenly signs. Verse 12 and 16, Jesus's followers will experience persecution, suffering, betrayal, and even death. And we certainly hear about some of these being fulfilled in the, in the book of Acts. In the meantime, before these things happen, in the, in the book of Acts, Jesus' followers, his disciples, the new converts, they, Paul, they experience lots of suffering, lots of persecution. Of course, they would have heard about the war before it arrived. Now, these kind of mirror the signs that take place in verses 25 through 28. So the signs of the last times. Verse 25, there will be cosmic signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. It's kind of like the undoing of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is about the creation of the world, the sun, the moon, the stars. 
Well, the, the, the end of times, there will be kind of the uncreation of the world. 25, the second half, uh, nations will be in anguish and chaos will rage on land and sea. I already feel like that happens. Verse 26, people will be afraid and the heavens will shake. But notice, Jesus doesn't tell us when he's coming back. He just kind of says, here are some signs that my return is near. Matthew 24, verse 36 through 42 says this, about, but about the hour or day, about the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. No one knows. Maybe some of you remember uh, Harold Camping back in 2012. I feel like he was one of the most like, uh, notorious recent figures in history, where he predicted the end of the world, Christ's return, would happen in 2012 on December 21st. I was actually driving through Lynn, an uh, internship at a church in Lynn, and there was a billboard about the, the end of the world, like at the, at the corner of an intersection. So people gave their money. They, like, they donated thousands and thousands of dollars because well, they, they believed and the world's going to end, so I might as well just give him my life savings and he'll use it to further a, a good message. And what happened? <laughs> it's now 2018. Harold Camping was incorrect. And it seems like he ignored this verse. No one knows. We can't look into the scriptures and say, oh, this is the day it's going to happen. So if someone comes to you and says, Jesus is coming back on this date, say, maybe, but there's no way we can know that. Our Heavenly Father knows and we can trust him. It's, it's safe in his hands. Now, I, I do believe that there are signs, right? This passage talks about signs. Although I don't want to go too deep into it, I, I, I want to tell you kind of what I believe about a few things. I, I do think there will be a, a great period of suffering and worldwide tribulation. I think you can see that uh, in this passage and in, based on other passages in Revelation. But I don't believe that some, like some believe that like, we'll have a specific tribu- tribulation where some will be raptured away from it. All the believers will be raptured away at the beginning, and then it'll be like a seven-year tribulation, and then Christ will return. I don't see that in Scripture. And if you look at the broad kind of overview of the story of believers in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't say, come and believe in me, and I will take you out of suffering. I will take you away from trouble. He says, no, come pick up your cross and follow me. If you look at many of the, the writings of Paul, he talks about suffering and how suffering is a witness for Christ. Believers will go through this period just like anyone else, but they will have the opportunity to be witnesses. And we actually see that reflected in this passage when Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, about what? About how they can be good witnesses. How the Holy Spirit can can help them uh, defend themselves and and, and speak up in the time of need to, to speak to the truth of Christ. We'll see that a little bit later. That's verse 14. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but we do know Christ is coming back. Question number three, how do we know it will happen? Well, in New England, every year we have 
spring and summer, right? And what are some of the first signs of spring and summer? It's like that, that, that cold, hard, bitter New England ground begins to like break <laughs> and give up, just like life, spurts of life, little green flowers, and, uh, and the, the trees begin to blossom a little bit. And then, of course, it snows again, and it's a, it's a hard-fought process, right? But these are still the signs that the summer's coming, that spring is coming. Well, Jesus uses a similar parable in verses 29 through 31 when he talks about the fig, the fig tree. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. See, fig trees are bare in the winter, so the first signs of leaves are evidence that summer is near. The signs Jesus has been describing will herald the return of the Son of Man. We can look for those signs. It's good to look. You can look at what's going on in this world, in this society, and say, maybe Jesus is near. Maybe there's still more to come. Maybe there's more suffering to come. But maybe Jesus is near. We can find hope in that. And then the final question, how can I be ready? I think for many of us, this is really the most important question. It's not when, but it's how. How can I be ready? How can I prepare for this? And I I counted seven ways in the passage uh, that we're just going to briefly go over. Seven different ways in the passage then at the end uh, in the last couple of verses that Jesus talks about. The first one is verse 8, watch out for false messiahs, don't follow them. He gave this to the first disciples, and I think it's still true today. If, if someone comes to you and says, I'm Jesus, <laughs> don't follow them. But we experience other forms of messiahs, don't we? Political messiahs or technological messiahs who say, come and put all your hope in me and what I can accomplish. Well, don't follow them either. Follow Christ. Number two, don't be afraid when you hear talks of war. Verse nine. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you can get a little fearful, right? Things aren't going well with Russia or North Korea. Nuclear war could happen at any moment. All those people in Hawaii, remember that when there was the false alarm that a like a, a nuclear missile was incoming? People like were running screaming from diners and stuff like that. It's a real reality, a real possibility, but we don't have to be afraid. We can trust in Jesus. And if war does come, it might just be Jesus saying, time to come home. I'll be coming back soon and you get to be with the party that, that comes back. We don't have to be afraid. Number three, Be a bold witness for Jesus and trust the Holy Spirit. Verse 13. Jesus says, don't worry about how you're going to defend yourself. Trust me. I will give you the words to speak. We see an example of that in in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. He just gives this amazing speech. He's full of the Holy Spirit. So, you don't have to worry too much about what you might say. And I think that's a... This applies to our everyday interactions with other people that don't know Jesus and wanting to share Jesus with them. Maybe you're like, I'm never going to share Christ because I don't feel prepared enough. Well, just trust Jesus. He'll give you the right words. Number four, stand firm, stand up, and look for Jesus in the sky because our redemption is near. See, as the world gets 
less hopeful and more depressed and more upset and more crazy, you can get more hopeful, more excited, and more just, more just filled with greater anticipation about the return of Jesus. When others are looking down, you can look up. When others feel like, like they're standing on shaky ground, you can say, I'm standing on solid ground. I'm with Jesus because our redemption is near. I love that phrase, and it comes from the scriptures. Stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Number five, trust Jesus and his words. So as you read this passage, don't read it as some sort of myth or, you know, lucky guess. Trust Jesus. And read the words around this one. Read the other books and get to know Jesus. Because that'll, that'll be an act of preparation. Every time that you spend a moment with Christ throughout your week, you're getting ready for his return. It's, it's training. Number six, don't get caught up in living life for yourself. Uh, Jesus says, you know, be careful of your hearts. Verse 34, your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. I'm not saying everyone believes this, but many people are like, man, if it was the end of the world, I would go out and I'd party and I would get drunk and I'd have just like a wild time and I'd spend all of my money. <laughs> like uh, Jesus like understands that desire. You say, no, don't do that. Like that's meaningless. Don't get caught up in that, living life, the party, or, or just living life about yourself. Also don't get caught up with anxieties. Don't worry about the future. Just trust there's a party that's yet to come that uh, Revelation talks about. And number seven, live every day watchfully and prayerfully. He talks about these in verse 36. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all this and is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. See, I want each of you to be able to stand before the Son of Man on that day. To not flee in terror, but to, to welcome him with open arms. This is a moment right here, right now, you can get ready for the return of Christ Jesus. Don't waste this moment. Prepare your hearts, prepare your minds, worship him. Realign your priorities, get rid of your idols. Focus on Christ, focus on the things that matter. How to survive the end of the world? Don't invest in a bunker, don't try to go to Mars. Don't just live life for yourself because tomorrow you die. The only way to survive the end of the world is with Jesus. And the good news is, like, if we read the rest of the Bible, it's not just about survival, right? When you think of survival, like, I'm going to go survive, and like, our, our backup plan, uh, Monica and me, if the end of the world comes, you know, not the actual end, but like a, like a media, medium end is to go to, to, to Andrew and Amanda's house, right, and Gannis, and then head up to, like, New Hampshire or Vermont, right? Well, survival, like you're in the woods, there's nothing there. The end of the world is not going to be like that. It'll be everlasting life. It won't be scraping by in starvation. There will be joy and happiness and fullness and life and vitality forever and ever and ever with Christ Jesus. That's the kind of end we're promised. It doesn't really sound like an end, does it? It's a new beginning.
It might be the end of this present world, but it's going to be the beginning of a new heavens and a new earth, an everlasting life with Christ Jesus. And you know how you can have that? What makes that possible is that Jesus allowed his world to come to an end. Jesus took upon all the chaos, all the wrath, all the judgment. What he took upon himself at the cross makes 70 AD look like nothing. That's what Jesus did for us. So if you believe that, just receive that anew and walk forward in hope. And if you haven't believed that yet, if you haven't received that, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus. So that the end of the world isn't the end of the world, it's life eternal with Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that passages like this about the end of the world can be incredibly hopeful. That they can bring us comfort and joy. And that we can trust in you confidently. We love you. We look forward to the return of Christ. It could happen at any time. But until that day, help us to be faithful. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.